Hi, and welcome to this latest episode of SEPAD Pod, the sectarianism proxies and desectarianization podcast based at Lancaster University. I'm Simon Mabin, and today I'm joined by Omar Al Shahabi, the director of the Gulf Center for Development Policies and associate professor in political economy of the Gulf University for Science and Technology in Kuwait. Omar is, is formerly someone who worked at the IMF and the World Bank, and in his words, he finally saw the light and, and came to academia. And I'm really pleased about that because his work has been absolutely fantastic. It's been really inspiring for me. He's the author of a recent book published by One World entitled Contested Modernity, Sectarianism, Nationalism and Colonialism in Bahrain. And it's absolutely fantastic. Omar, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, thank you very much, Simon, for that introduction. It's a pleasure to be here. And, uh, thank yeah, you. Thank you for the great work. Uh, it's very kind of you to say, Omar, and thank you for joining us. I'm really excited to talk to you about about the book and also some some other bits of your work that have really piqued my interest and I think will be of, of real interest to our listeners. But before we get on to that, could you tell us just a little bit about what got you interested in, in Bahraini politics and, and the questions of sectarianism that you're addressing? I guess, what made you see the light in your words? <laughs> so, I mean, I, uh, I, my main work is actually usually in uh, political economy and economics. Uh, but I also, one of my uh, main interests actually has been over the last few years, uh, for many reasons, uh, some of them the people I know, and uh, just uh, also, you know, some of uh, family members, etc., was in uh, political movements in Bahrain, and specifically and the leftist and nationalist movements that have been in Bahrain uh, historically. So in the beginning, I uh, I did a few pieces on that, especially on those in the 70s and 50s. But the more I, I, uh, I got into it and the more I talked to people, I saw that these, uh, these movements um, fed or built on traditions that stretched uh, much back, uh, much, uh, much longer uh, back in history. And um, especially, I, you know, I, I, uh, more and more, they went back to the beginning of the, uh, of the 20th century and even to the latter part of the 19th century. And no one really, uh, when in discussing Bahraini uh, politics, no, uh, there isn't much discussion around these earlier uh, political thoughts and movements uh, in, uh, in Bahrain. Usually it starts from the 50s it's, uh, or maybe the 30s, but not much. Uh, earlier, and so this uh, piqued my interest in this period, let's say from the late 19th century up until the first quarter of the 20th century in terms of political movements. And then I also, you know, then you also find out that this is the time period when um, also there was the, uh, what I argue at least in the book, there was the first uh, uh, bouts of uh, sectarian or sect-based mobilization in the uh, modern history of Bahrain. So, if we're looking at the 19th and 20th century, uh, the 19, uh, the early 20th century, it seems, was uh, when this uh, took hold, and it was also the time uh, when the new system of rule, uh, what I guess we could call absolutism, was also established, and also was the time when uh, British colonialism reached its peak in Bahrain. So, all of these factors kind of. Uh, combined to make me think, well, you know what, uh, this would be a very, uh, you know, a crucial period to look at, this period between the uh, late 19th century up to the 1930s, uh, to understand a lot of the uh, 
uh, currents and lineages that uh, feed into the situation of uh, modern Israel of Bahrain up until today. So this is, I guess, how, at least in terms of this book, uh, I got uh, interested in it, to look at how these different currents of nationalism, sectarianism, colonialism, absolutism fed into each other specifically in this period uh, and the, uh, I guess, the contestations that came out of it. Sure. And I, I wonder, why do you think there was that, that gap, Omar? I mean, I think you're right. I think there is this, this real gap in the literature. But, but why was it when it seems so, so evidently important? It's it's a good question, you know. I mean, I, it's it's uh, you know it's difficult to look at different uh, you know motivations, but I think uh, it, there is definitely different. I think also traditions in the Arabic literature and in the English literature. So I think one of the main reasons might have been also that um, in the English literature, a lot of what was written on that period uh, depends heavily, sometimes almost exclusively, on the British uh, colonial archives. And so the British colonial archives obviously come from a certain viewpoint. They emphasize certain yeah. things, uh, which I talked to. Uh, that was that is part of what I also uh, try to uh, look at in the book. Uh, while obviously at the same time it hides other things that do not uh, that do not register as much. So, for example, these early kind of buds of uh, nationalist. Uh, movements, or you know what I call another movement, to tie with with the wider Arab world that also had a similar movement, do not really register in the British colonial archives. Or if they did register, they usually register as you know uh, unwanted individuals, uh, criminals, or basically seditious people that are uh, causing uh, problems for for that. And so, I think that is. Uh, uh, you know that I think is uh, part uh, part of the reasons, but also I think it's um, uh, what I also try to focus on the book on is that um, because of the current probable situ- uh, situation uh, and climate in Bahrain, uh, the sectarianism part gets emphasized throughout the history. Yeah, and so all of the history for the last two hundred years gets read primarily through sect categories. Uh, And so the kind of other uh, readings and uh, factors that you could look into history can sometimes can uh, get lost in that because the the kind of narrative uh, or the focus always just focuses on basically uh, sect-based mobilization, etc. That these other uh, kind of uh, movements or discourses or important uh, factors that played into history get discounted or not appear as much. So, I mean, I guess if I was to guesstimate, yeah, maybe those I'd put down as, as two of the reasons. Right. Before we, we get on to the book itself and the argument, I, I just want to tease out one aspect, if I may, and that's uh, you're uh, very quick in the in the book to talk about this concept of ethno-sectarian gaze. I wonder if you can just say a little bit about what you mean by that. For people who have not yet read the book, before we get on to the the substance of the argument, please. Yeah, so I mean, this is one of the, uh, I guess, uh, ideas that I try to develop in the book. And uh, quite simply, it's uh, it's this, it's that looking, again, uh, uh, I'm very careful to kind of periodize this, that if we're looking at uh, British colonialism in the early 20th century, late 19th century, uh, 
the way the uh, uh, at least this is what I argue the way that like uh, a lot of the uh, empire was run and definitely and specifically in Bahrain uh, when they uh, when British colonial officers came to read the situation on the ground uh, they identified uh, the dynamics in society basically one through having communities. They had to basically look at the uh, uh, social background and say, okay, there, uh, we must read this through communities. If we were going to make a map of the social scene, we have to identify different communities. That was how uh, the map was read. And then these communities were primarily read through sect categories. So basically the British in Bahrain, for example, they said that there were two basic communities in Bahrain, and these communities were the Sunni community and the Shia community. And basically any kind of analysis or then institutions uh, that, they, that the British built or even the way of government was built around this uh, concept of having a communities and that these communities were primarily identified through uh, sect uh, and ethnicities. And in the, in the case of Bahrain, the two communities were basically, there was a Sunni community and then there was a Shia community. So that's kind of the idea behind it, is that when they approached to look at the scene on the ground, uh, the way they read the local, let's say, uh, social scene was through basically that we have two communities and these communities are the Sunni community and the Shia community. And that's how we're going to practice politics and modes of government based on that reading. I mean, it's it's verging on that sort of that that ancient hatred thesis. This this idea that that there are these distinct communities that have an ancient animosity towards each other, right? Yeah, I mean, definitely that part, uh, plays a part into it. Now, I mean, I, I think it's important to uh, you know just to clarify. I mean, where uh, it's important to you know to uh, to make clear that one is not saying that. There have not been, you know, bouts of uh, sectarian clashes or tensions or sectarian mobilizations in history, uh, whether in Bahrain or otherwise in the region. I mean, obviously that has been the case. Whether we're looking at the, you know, the the Safavid uh, Ottoman uh, uh, clashes that happened on on, on sect basis, etc. So that uh, that is not obviously what one is saying. But what, uh, what I think the idea is. Uh, is that when uh, when you're looking at modern history, mm. and especially this uh, period of 19th to 20th century, is that you're basically start approaching politics by saying exactly that there are d uh, defined, definite communities on the ground, that each of these communities, uh, uh, if, you know, if we want to take an extreme example, have their own institutions, have their own leaders. We can identify the leader of each of these communities, the Sunni community and the Shia community, and that based on that, then we can basically uh, govern these two, uh, these two or more different communities on the ground based on that. And then that you start basically putting... Uh, this into practice in terms of laws, yeah. um, institutions, etc. Sure. So let, let's delve into that a bit more then, if if we may. In in terms of the argument that you put forward in the book, then Omar, what is it that you're that you're looking at? Then what are you what are you trying to argue? Uh, well, um, I think the book tries to uh, look at uh, again look at the different um, currents 
that uh, shaped this period from the late 19th century up until the uh, early 20th century. And uh, specifically, as we said, look at uh, the how colonialism, sectarianism, nationalism, uh, and modernized absolutism uh, played into it. And I guess if I'm going to say the main three or four theses that I, w- uh, that I put forward in the book, uh, one would be that uh, I would say that modernized absolutism, uh, which you know continues to be the mode of rule in the, uh, in the Gulf, was for the first time born in Bahrain in that period, in the 1920s. And that we could trace the lineages also from that to, also, uh, to how it developed afterwards and also to where that came from. We could also look at uh, uh, when, uh, when the British instituted many of the institutions of government, they relied on uh, how they, as a blueprint, how they approached government in the India princely states under the British Raj. Uh, so that's one part that uh, maybe is not completely relevant to uh, uh, to our discussion here, but I think it actually does also play a, a part. So yeah. uh, it's important to emphasize. So that's one. The second then is that basically also that if we're looking again, I'm just looking at the 19th and 20th century. I'm not looking earlier than that. I'm not looking at a previous period. That if sure. we look at the 19th and 20th century, the first. Uh, about where uh, sect-based politics and mobilization came to become the dominant uh, form of conducting politics was in this period of the first quarter of the 20th century. And then we could also talk about what were the main factors that led to this to emerge in this uh, period. So if we look at the period before this, so like the most of the 19th century, uh, I argue that politics was not mainly conduct, uh, sect was not the main overriding factor in explaining uh, politics in the 19th century. But once we enter the first quarter of the 20th century, uh, it starts increasing in importance and salience uh, into it. And there, and we can talk, as I said, about the factors that do that. And finally, I guess for me, maybe the most important or one of the most important is also to to shine a light on these other uh, movements and currents and ideas that uh, in the previous histories written of that uh, time period were not uh, were not discussed, uh, specifically what I call another uh, Renaissance uh, group, which you know were for the first buds. You could trace the modern uh, nationalist leftist, liberal, even Islamist movements to the first buds of thoughts that came from them as a way to say, you know, it's not only always uh, uh, to read everything through uh, sectarianism, that it's also to look, it's good to look at these, uh, it's important to look at these other uh, movements that, uh, you know, put forward other thoughts, including trans-sectarian and sometimes even uh, anti-sectarian modes of thought. Um, So I think, yeah, those are the... um, the three main, uh, let's say, thesis that I, I, I try to uh, uh, to put forward uh, throughout the book. And I think you put them them all forward in an incredibly convincing and powerful way. And it's it, it was a really really powerful read. Not a not a particularly easy read in terms of the content. It's it's not a cheery read, but it's a very <laughs> persuasive read. So I I think you're successful in in what you set out to do, Omar. Well, thank you very much. I'm glad to. Well, my pleasure. I, I thoroughly enjoyed reading it. If if one can indeed enjoy reading about this this type of cheery topic, um, 
you mentioned that that there were other factors that that gave rise to increasingly the increasing prominence of sectarian identities. Can you say a little bit about what those were, then, please? Yeah. Um, so I, I, I mean, uh, again, I mean, uh, uh, I try to approach this by looking at. Um, I guess the main way I tried to approach it was through uh, the influence, the biggest influence in the book was the work of Stuart Hall. And this idea that you need to look at the conjuncture and the kind of condensation of forces that happened in that particular juncture that came about. So one of the main ideas I try to emphasize throughout the book is that there are no teleological kind of, uh, you know, reasons of why it emerges in a, uh, in a specific manner, but that we can look at uh, specific important factors in this period. And I, and I put forward two. The first is basically... Uh, this idea that the changes uh, that happened in this uh, late 19th to the earliest 20th century in terms of the mode of life and uh, uh, economic developments that happened to this period. So this was a period of uh, of a boom, as they call it, the age of capitalism. You had the pearl uh, market growing uh, in the Gulf, and you had the rise of the two uh, cities of Manama and Muharraq uh, in, uh, in Bahrain. And uh, so for me, this interaction between the rise of the urban centers and how this interwove with the uh, rural agricultural base scene, and particularly is the relationship between um, uh, the ruling uh, family and the uh, towns and the agricultural uh, villages. So, you know, I argue that there was a very different uh, experience in terms of what would hap- was happening in the agricultural villages compared to what was happening uh, in the towns. Now, obviously, in this period, uh, as elsewhere, I guess, uh, uh, in the region, let's say the uh, toiling classes were, uh, uh, you know, had a hard time generally overall, I yeah. think. But there was a very uh, uh, different experience of, let's say, those in the urban towns, which the biggest employer was the diving industry which their relationship was much more with the uh, ship captains, uh, and they did not have a direct uh, economic uh, relationship with the rulers, uh, so not a direct line of repression. Uh, and that, uh, However, in the uh, villages, it was a, a different story because there uh, you had a different mode of life and a different mode of, uh, uh, of uh, extraction where basically there was direct uh, taxes, direct uh, repression um, based in the uh, agricultural villages. So this, I think, created one factor that, uh, that played a big role in how uh, uh, it developed throughout the 19th to the early 20th century. And then the other factor that I also try to um, uh, bring into this story, which I think generally has not had as much as uh, emphasis on, is the colonial experience. Yeah. And uh, uh, you already mentioned the part about the uh, uh, the ethno-sectarian gaze or how the British came to uh, view the um, uh, the situation in Bahrain. So basically, in 1900, uh, there uh, Britain decided to have direct presence on the ground. Uh, in the Gulf, and Bahrain became the uh, the hotspot for that, if you will. And uh, they sent a political agent by 1904, and they instituted this kind of what was called divided rule, uh, which is the idea that I bring, where they basically uh, said that all foreigners 
are under uh, British jurisdiction, while all locals are under uh, the local ruler's jurisdiction. Now, obviously, back then there wasn't uh, passports, nationalism was still it's in an infancy, so the idea of who was a foreigner and a local uh, became highly contested. And the British, using the ethno-sectarian gaze, mainly came to define foreignness versus local, mainly through ethnicities uh, and sex. And so this dynamic, uh, and so then they started, uh, that there were institutions put on the ground based on this, whether it's the uh, uh, municipal council, the police force, the courts, were all done with this heavy influence of uh, uh, basically looking at the society as being made up of two communities, uh, Shias and Sunnis, and basically drawing uh, institutions based on that. And so these uh, factors started being contested by different uh, uh, forces on the ground, whether it's the local ruler, uh, the British, uh, different local forces on the ground, and also foreign governments. And so this contestation uh, by the uh, 1920s had stirred uh, overtly uh, violent in many cases, and also took on uh, increasingly an ethnosect dimension in the way that it developed. And that that ethnosectarian gaze that that you talk about is is such a powerful tool. I found in that it it has the capacity to to erode all manner of other legitimate grievances that have often been articulated by by the various groups that you talk about in the book but then are, are rejected and steamrolled by this ethno-sectarian gaze that immediately casts any legitimate grievance as a, a consequence of this ethno-sectarian difference. Uh, exactly. So, I mean, uh, you know, one of the things uh, I try to tease out, I mean, at the end of the day, I, I like to look at the book as a history book. And one of the things I tried to look at was what was the situation in Bahrain uh, in the 19th century to compare to what happened in the... Um, first quarter of the 20th century. And I think if you basically use the same kind of lens that the British used, where they basically divided the country into two communities of Shias and Sunnis, and that's how you would uh, try to analyze politics even, let alone you know govern a place, you would not go very far. The, the, um, there were other factors that played, a, uh, I would argue, even a much more important role. So this kind of division between rural and urban, yeah. uh, the, uh, the geographic space, um, the how uh, basically, obviously, the class, the profession you were in, uh, these were all very, uh, uh, played an important role. And even in terms of sect, so, I mean, you know, you're we usually think of Sunnis and Shias as two distinct, very uh, sects that if you look at the most of the 19th century, um, Medhab, more than sect, uh, in some cases, played a, a, an important role at the social level. And obviously in Medhab, then you have four Medhabs mm. uh, within uh, Islamic tradition. And a lot of people, when you look at the 19th century, had identified themselves according to Medhab. Um, rather than, you know, two hardened uh, sect groups. So this was the idea that actually it doesn't, if you just approach it that this way through two, uh, through the ethno-sectarian gaze of two hardened groups of communities of Sunni and Shia, not looking at the differences between what was happening in the urban area, the rural areas, through the different villages, through the different professions, through the different classes, 
it's it, you're not going to get very far in understanding uh, the situation. Yeah. And as you said, it can obscure a lot of the uh, other factors on the ground. And then it also obscures the different uh, agencies of individuals involved. You start basically just labeling people, oh, he's a Sunni, this is why this is he has the sure. position he has. Oh, this guy's a Shia, this is basically why he has that position. And that basically starts determining how you... Uh, look at uh, people's politics or even view the uh, the different uh, political developments on the ground. Yeah, it, it's incredibly powerful. And, and once again, I urge anyone who's not read the book to, to really get hold of a copy and, and spend some time getting to grips with it. It's very, very powerful. Omar, we've taken up a lot of your time, but I have one last question, if I may. And, and it goes back to something you said a few minutes ago about about the emergence of different types of groups during the, the 50s and the 70s that were of a trans-sectarian and an anti-sectarian nature. I wonder if if you can say a little bit about that, because as part of SEPAD, we're looking at the ways in which sectarian identities are being contested, be it the sort of the movements that speak to a trans-sectarian audience or that reject religious identities and sectarian identities altogether in an anti-sectarian way, or whether it's the deconstruction of sectarian identities in the desectarianization kind of way. So I wonder if you can just say a little bit about that, please. Yeah, so, I mean, again, this was what got me interested in large part in the book uh, to begin with. And I mean, I think here it's important to look at different traditions of political practice that emerged. Uh, and uh, I mean, traditions basically through the different kind of, you know, practice, songs, uh, different movements that different groups do. And as I said, when I started looking at the 50s and 70s, uh, what drew me is that they drew on traditions and they always went back to this period of the early 20th century. And these are the individuals of Al-Nahva that I tried to... Um, uh, to uh, elucidate. And in a lot of the cases, there were even family uh, lineages where one, you know, it goes back three generations and they're politically active up until today and from the early 20th century. So this idea of tradition, different traditions of political practice uh, drew me very much. And then it became very important to look at how this changed over time, right? So if, for example, if we were looking at the early 20th late 19s where, you know, the one I talk about in the book, which I termed the Al-Nahda group, it was much more, um, you know, uh, an inchoate mix uh, that had, you know, uh, Islamic reform, Arabism, anti-colonialism. Once we reach the 1930s, uh, then you have basically the new oil industry as well has entered. So you find uh, class relations have entered into the political uh, uh, groups that also actually drew on, in some cases, were the same people that were involved in the period of the early 20th century. And then when you get to the 1950s, it becomes much more distinctly nationalist. So pan-Arabist, um, growing on, you know, uh, taking support or inspiration from Nasser, um, and you obviously have what was called the uh, uh, National Union Committee movement in 1954 to 1956 took on a much more nationalist pan-Arabist view. Uh, but also uh, sect played a part in their composition in terms of that uh, when they elected the uh, committee of eight people, uh, they made sure that they had four Shias and they had four Sunnis. Uh, and it also reflects in the way that, for example, the... Uh, 
the government tried to uh, divide this group. They also tried to divide it by basically using, uh, d- uh, creating different sect groupings to try to uh, divide that group based on uh, uh, on sex. By the time we reached the 1960s, I think, in the 1970s, what's interesting is that now the groups that have become more revolutionary, gone more underground, uh, like the you know the uh, the Communist Party in Bahrain or the uh, movement of Arab nationalists and later the Popular Front, the leftist uh, turn, they it's interesting that no longer in their composition they have sect as something that they need to uh, kind of uh, consciously or subconsciously uh, think about when they're choosing their cadre. It becomes much more that they. Uh, it's, it becomes much more. Oh well, what what is this guy's? You know, what does he think of? You know, Maoism or Leninism or what are his relationships to sect? Uh, by that point, has as uh, uh, at least within the group not, uh, has uh, uh, faded as an important, even subconsciously part in in how they compose themselves uh, or think of themselves. Um, obviously, by the time we enter the 1970s and 80s and the leftist and nationalist movements wane down, that uh, that changes. But I think it's sure. interesting to draw these, as I try to call them traditions. And again, here I'm drawing on the uh, the work of uh, Karman Abulsi and also uh, Abdel Razak Takriti, who, uh, mm. who talk about this idea of traditions of different, basically, groups of people and how they, uh, you know, try to... Uh, continue and keep these different kernels of ideas. They change over time, but there is a, definitely a lineage that you can draw. And this is what I also tried to the, uh, to draw from the book from the late 19th century, early 20th century, uh, up until the 1970s. It's absolutely fascinating, and and I've got so much to think about just from from talking through some of these ideas with you, Omar. So thank you so much. It's been absolutely wonderful to to talk through the book. I absolutely loved reading it. I strongly urge everyone to to get hold of a copy and to 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 have an have have some serious thinking about about what's going on in Bahrain and the application of these ideas beyond uh, beyond the Gulf itself. So Omar, thank you so much for joining us. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you very much, Simon. And uh, yeah, good luck with the rest of the of the uh, of the project. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening. Until the next time.